Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and the following interview is being republished with permission from the excellent podcast Psychologists Off the Clock. That's Psychologists Off the Clock at offtheclockpsych.com. I hope you enjoy the interview. And it's, the acceptance part is both, that there are some challenges that we will experience that other people will not who are gender and heterosexual but there's also this rich heritage that you know a lot of people can look at and admire but it's really cool to feel like you're part of that yeah i think that's one of the most beautiful places that this takes us you are listening to ashling leonard Curtin and dr matthew skinta on psychologists off the clock Curious what psychologists chat about over coffee? We are three clinical psychologists who love to discuss the best ideas from psychology. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. And from coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. In this podcast, we explore the psychological principles that we use in our clinical work. And we bring you ideas from psychology that can help you flourish in your work, parenting, relationships, and health. Thank you for listening to Psychologist Off the Clock. Hi, folks. This is Diana here. I'm excited to share with you a couple of workshops that I'm going to be doing. One is in February in a couple weeks at Yoga Soup on cultivating psychological flexibility. It's hands-on and experiential. I hope you can make it. That is on February 17th. And the other is a day-long women's wellness retreat that I'm hosting up at Goodland Organics Coffee Farm, which is a beautiful farm up in the foothills of Goleta with ocean views and coffee trees or coffee bushes and exotic fruits. That uh, retreat is going to have everything from arriving to organic coffee and juices. We're going to have yoga. I'm going to teach a couple of workshops on uh, self-compassion and also on psychological flexibility. We're also going to have a beautiful plant-based lunch. So I hope that you can make it. That's April 6th. Save the date. And for podcast listeners, we're offering a, a discount. So there's a $50 discount if you sign up early and then an additional $25 off if you enter in off the clock um, on our website. So look it up on drdianahill.com. Great. Thank you, Diana. That's wonderful. We have for you today an interview I did with Dr. Matthew Skinta and Ashling Leonard Curtin. They're both clinicians who specialize in working with gender and sexual minorities. And clearly, there are many unique challenges, I think, faced by gender and sexual minorities that can really have a deep impact on people. And so I really enjoyed talking with them about their work. is a chartered counseling psychologist with the Psychological Society of Ireland who lives with her wife, Trish, in Dublin, Ireland. She is a TEDx speaker, co-director of Act Now Purposeful Living, 
has a small private practice, and consults with a number of organizations to deliver acceptance and mindfulness workshops. Ashling is a peer-reviewed acceptance and commitment therapy and functional analytic psychotherapy trainer. Ashling regularly gives workshops and talks internationally throughout Europe, North America, and Australia. She has over a decade's experience working in a wide range of settings, including adult psychiatry, psycho-oncology, educational, health, and community settings. She co-authored the new self-help book, The Power of Small, alongside her wife, fellow psychologist Trish, a self-help book aimed at those feeling overwhelmed, which was just recently released in 2019. Dr. Matthew Skinta is a board-certified clinical health psychologist who lives with his husband in San Francisco. His private practice focuses on challenges posed by shame and interpersonal rejection and their interaction with health behaviors or minority status. And for four years, he directed the Sexual and Gender Identities Clinic at Palo Alto University. Matthew's past research has focused on the impact of stigma and shame on health behavior of sexual minority men, particularly as it relates to sexual health and HIV-related care. He is a peer-reviewed ACT trainer and is certified as both a compassion cultivation training teacher and as a trainer of functional analytic psychotherapy. Matthew has provided workshops for professional organizations, universities, and conferences in North America, South America, and Europe. He is currently writing a clinical manual on process-based therapy for treating minority stress among sexual orientation and gender-diverse clients that will be released by Rutledge in 2020. Together, Matthew and Ashling co-edited the book, Mindfulness and Acceptance for Gender and Sexual Minorities, which we will be discussing today. They also co-chaired a conference on evidence-based advances in psychotherapy for sexual orientation and gender-diverse clients in the Bay Area in 2017 and are following up with a second international conference in Budapest in September 2019. And if anyone's interested in that conference, we will link to it on our show notes for today's episode. Welcome, Matthew and Ashling. Thank you, Debbie. Um, I wanted to just start by talking a little bit about my own values around doing this podcast and what I'm hoping for. I think as a clinician, I, I just think this is really important that we have as much understanding as and awareness as we can when we work with gender and sexual minority clients. I also care about a number of people in my personal life, family, friends, and coworkers who are gender and sexual minorities. And I, you know, just in general, think this is so important for for the world. Um, and so this might be a little ambitious for just one podcast episode, but I'm hoping that we can have a conversation today that will be useful for people who themselves identify as gender and sexual minorities, their family and loved ones, as well as clinicians who are working with this population. So I let's start with your values. How did you both end up writing and speaking about this topic? And why is this work so important to you on a personal level? Um, so for me, this is why I got into the field. You know, I, um, you know, think, thinking way, way back, um, you know, my parents were military. And so I was living in, in, uh, the very early nineties in the Netherlands as a kid where there were op-eds about, you know, it's not a Dutch value to stare at same sex couples holding hands that we'd see in the newspapers. And then we moved from there to, Wichita, Kansas, right after the Summer of Mercy, which was sort of an era of big fundamentalist revival in the Midwest, and um, and, uh, and and very much the opposite end of the spectrum. And so, as a as a young gay boy, sort of 
growing up, coming out. Um, you know, this was really a slap in the face of how big context was. And then I go to college and these textbooks are, are st were still at the time, you know, very pathologizing or, or just treating LGBT perspectives as very alien. So, um, so this was my whole um, motivation for becoming a psychologist. You know, here's a field with a lot of power to make things right. And they, they don't seem to be doing it all the time. So I wanted to change that. Wonderful. How about you, Ashling? How did you get into this? Why yeah, so for, for me, um, like many Irish people, I grew up Irish Catholic. We kind of think that we're a different brand than the Roman Catholic brand. Um, so there was kind of a lot of guilt and shame around sexuality growing up. And I guess um, for me, I probably repressed my sexuality a lot in the kind of earlier years and I would have came out later in life. So I would have came out um, kind of around six years ago when I was 28 and um, then kind of rec just having people have kind of difficult reactions to that, kind of having them see me as being straight and then kind of not really understanding and kind of seeing things as a phase. And I think six years and a wife later, I think people are kind of <laughs> on board now. Um, but it certainly wasn't an easy transition. And um, I kind of came back to, I suppose, what originally brought me into psychology was anxiety and struggling, that I was, I suppose, struggling with other people making sense of my identity and kind of finding a new way in the world. And that's really when Matthew and I teamed up around um, around that time, I, I got much more in, in, involved in terms of psychology and advocacy and like how can I help other people who have similar experiences to me. Wonderful. You're able to share your own experience a little bit. And I appreciate you doing that today. Today, you had such different paths for getting here and that is this shared value around this really important work. Mm -hmm. Well, and actually, I, I wanted to talk to you about this because I myself identify, I'm cisgender and I identify um, as heterosexual. And so I, you know, always feel a little worried. Um, like, what if I don't say the right you know, labels or terminology? And you had some wonderful sections in your book. Um, for clinicians on cultural humility and just the importance of unknowing. Um, mm. And so I think that people might fear this, that maybe they don't know enough or they might say the wrong thing. And in fact, I was telling one of my friends who's a gay man that I was doing this episode and I was just chatting with him. I was like, what, what would you want to know from two mental health professionals? And that was his concern, which actually felt a little relieving to me. He said, you know, I have trouble keeping track of the right words and just not necessarily understanding every aspect of this experience. Can you speak a little bit to how people who are maybe straight, cisgender allies or clinicians working, how they might just approach their own limitations in talking about these kind of issues? Yeah. Absolutely. So I think there's, to, to my mind, there's kind of two sides of this. One is, you know, to be as open as possible to kind of developments as, as, the, as they're happening. Um, and at the same time, you know, just to be aware of maybe the kind of rigid rules that we have, or we can kind of get blinkered. Sorry, we say blinkered in Ireland, but I think in the US, you call it as a blinded or blinded. Okay. Um, so <laughs> thank you for translating. So whenever I talk about blinkered, people in Ireland, the UK, Australia, and New Zealand know exactly what I'm talking about. And people in the US look at me with a blank, but it's kind of this, is that blinded or blinded? 
blinders, I think. Blinders, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so I think we can kind of almost have blinders on us about terminology as well. And sometimes that can be a form of disconnection. So I think that we absolutely need to be aware of terminology as it moves on. But really, it's like on an individual basis and not to be making assumptions based on somebody in terms of their gender identity and then what pronouns they use or, you know, um, categories that they might identify with because it can vary massively from person to person and I can see it that sometimes um, whether it's mental health professionals or family or friends they become so caught up in getting the right words and saying the right thing that they actually lose contact with the person as a person because you know and I think that element of humanity can get lost so for me it's always a human to human connection and how can I be respectful of whoever is in front of me and their identity and be open to that changing um, because I think sometimes people can think okay because this person identifies in a certain way in terms of their gender identity or sexual identity now that that's how they're always going to identify and then that there can be assumptions based on that that can be a form of a microaggression which can almost kind of closet or kind of straitjacket somebody in and for a lot of gender minorities in particular that I work with I kind of share with them that a lot of kind of trans and gender non-conforming people I work with that they um, identify with different kind of categories or identities or labels at different times and different pronouns and that that's absolutely fine and that for me I have no vested interest in them identifying in any way in particular or using any particular pronoun it's around me being respectful of them and where they are in terms of their gender identity and i think you know this is an area people have so much concern and it comes up at every workshop or every uh, every talk you know what if i don't know the right words what if i don't understand a person's identity and i think you know part of why we focus on these attitudes toward it like cultural humility like um acquiring comfort with unknowing is that um, a lot is communicated, a lot non-verbally, a lot about our value and our openness and our readiness to connect with other people with what we do with that information. Um, you know, there's, there's not, you know, at a certain level, there's not a lot different that someone is telling you when they say, oh, actually, this is my pronoun, uh, or, or this is the correct pronoun for me, um, versus, you know, oh, I used to work at that shop across the street. But what, how do you respond in terms of curiosity, in terms of rolling with it, in terms of staying connected and engaged in a conversation? And so that, that kind of nervous floundering or, um, or overly intense curiosity that sometimes comes up, you know, I think that could be another way that, that rifts develop because we worry so much that this is something that we have to get right and we have to know or that, um, or or without thinking about it, we kind of put it on the other person that our comfort with what they've just said has to be uh, taken care of in some way by them, and and it's not their job to make us okay because um, because we don't have a similar gender experience or experience of our sexual orientation or a history of how it's evolved over time, and and so I really think it's just important to to recognize that because it comes across as, uh, and, and it will come across, you know, Ashling mentioned microaggressions as a rejection of the other person or as an objectification of the other person. And so, um, so this is just in keeping with our own values of, can we stay connected? Um, is this a person we care about? Can I show that care through receiving whatever I hear in that way?
Mm, yeah. So just it it really I think speaks to the importance of not assuming anything, of showing up there, even if there is some uncertainty that you're sitting with. Mm-hmm. Be there anyway. And then something I love from your book that I'm gonna hold on to is simply and compassionately ask. So don't assume anything, just talk to the person and find out and and show up and do your best. Yeah. Well, I think that this is a really timely podcast episode, although I suppose it's always timely, but I know that issues related to um, gender and sexual minorities have really been in politics, in the news, in the U.S. and in Ireland. In fact, I've read some, you know, some recent reports from overseas as well. Um, And one thing that I'm really curious about is how the cultural events in the news, politics, current events, how that plays out in terms of mental health factors. Well, I think, I mean, it takes an incredibly heavy toll. And I think, um, I think the news coverage often downplays the impact. You know, there was the news recently and there were protests here about um, a White House memo that was intended to, and and, uh, the White House is also... I understand, um, uh, attempted to pressure the UN toward the same stance of we should recognize two biological sexes. And in talking about this, I think for some people disconnected from gender and sexual minority communities, you think, oh, well, this is, you know, this, this, this is uh, this sort of vanity coastal issue. But the reality is this affects, this affects people's ability to travel. You know, if you don't have a passport that matches your gender, to work if you don't have ID or social security card that's uh, consistent with how you present yourself, or if it lists um, your dead name, these are all these are all ways where very quickly a person is is just roughly shoved out of mainstream society and out of their ability to work and out of their ability to care for themselves, and so then how that translates in the office is um, hopelessness, is suicidality is um, incredible anxiety because you don't know what situations it will come up in. And, uh, and, and you get that parallel as well, where there are all those reports of, you know, as the federal government says, no, no, it's my job to police what your gender is. It empowers people on the street to feel like it's their job as well. So then you get that mounting kind of dread that that people are going to feel encountered as you move through daily life to challenge you on your gender in, in ways and in contexts that are none of their business and don't affect them. Yeah, so it could lead to some aggressive responses and... Yeah, really violence, assault. Violence, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I really believe, and when we look at the research, it's really clear that, you know, validation or invalidation have such massive impact in terms of mental health and well-being, and particularly within gender and sexual minority communities. Um, so, you know, to, to have um, this mass invalidation at this kind of political and um, contextual level really does kind of seep down throughout that. And I guess within the Irish context, you know, we saw this very clearly, you know, back in 2015 where we had a referendum around same-sex marriage and we were the first country to hold a referendum and part of that is is because when Ireland was made into a republic when we, we kind of got our country back it had been under British rule for um, about 800 years or so um, when we got it back one of the things that was put in was that this is our um, our constitution and if there are changes to it it's the people who need to decide which in some ways is 
quite cool because it means we get to have a say as a society. Uh, but then it, it, it becomes problematic when, you know, when the Constitution was a man and a woman and then it was around um, kind of bringing in kind of same-sex pieces. And certainly here, the statistics showed very clearly that young people in particular were needing to access mental health services on the run-up to that election because the no campaigners, which did not not want marriage equality, um, were just, you know, it was just a lot of hateful speech, really, is just the, the best way of putting it. So when... Um, marriage equality came on board in Ireland and you know and and certainly in Ireland now um, trans people are able to kind of get their passports redone to have their their gender identity placed on them that certainly has moved things along Um, you know there there are still lots of there's there's just so many tiny ways even when we kind of have it looking okay kind of from the outside on a political level there are just lots of tiny ways and even there's one tiny thing that I think of is you know I have a smartphone and I like to send gifts to my wife and if you look up love or wife it is always always a heterosexual couple you know you you're not going to find and that sounds like a little teeny tiny thing but it's it's hard when you're not finding representations of your relationship or of your gender just in kind of popular culture and I think then the other layer that we're talking about here is the political culture I think really does have a massive impact and we certainly have a ways to go in Ireland uh, but I'll be honest with you I feel very grateful to live in Ireland when I see a lot of the stuff that's going on in the US right now it really feels like things are going backwards over there and it feels like here we're not perfect but it feels like the general trajectory seems to be moving toward more equality so really my heart breaks when I see a lot of the, the things that are going on in the US at the moment. Yeah, and if if you look globally, I mean, there's such variance in this around the world. And I just imagine how that impacts people in these different places, just in their context. Well, and and there's there's this way that the law and society didn't always move the same direction. So like I uh, had the good fortune, I was giving workshops in Buenos Aires earlier this year. And Argentina has a pretty powerful uh, slate of laws for gender and sexual orientation equality that they passed a few years back that has really changed people's rights and protections. Um, but on the streets, it's still, it still seems a very conservative culture. Many of the co- uh, same-sex married professionals I met didn't wear rings or things like that. And then I, I traveled on to uh, uh, Chile where uh, the laws and the legal protections are nowhere near as it's comprehensive, but there have been a number of large social campaigns around the dangers and the violence associated with homophobia. And, um, and so there's a radically different attitude on the street. And so in Santiago, seeing uh, gay couples being affectionate and um, you know, same-sex couples of, uh, of uh, different stripes, you know, showing affection, holding hands, kissing in public, things like that, is a radically different feel even though the laws were different. So it's, it's, it's such a complicated patchwork. It's so interesting that the, the legal aspect may not be the same as people's attitudes mm-hmm. in, in this society. Yeah. Well, and this is, a, I think, related to a topic that I think is really important to think about, which is uh, minority stress and how individuals can be so deeply impacted psychologically um, when they live in a world where they're, they're, you know, sort of the minority, but also the minority that's looked upon in a certain way. Can you um, can you guys tell our listeners about what minority stress is and how that how that can impact people? 
So, um, so minority stress, it's helpful to think of as just, this is a, a theoretical lens that researchers use just to track how bias affects people. So part of it is that in the early days of LGBT research, they were like, oh, well, internalized homophobia, you know, that's, that's a good focus. We know people carry around a lot of baggage from what they were told. But over the course of the 80s, they realized, you know, this is a pretty limiting lens. Um, not only is this not telling us a lot, but it's not capturing, you know, this doesn't predict what we see in the studies of depression, of anxiety, of panic, of substance use. Um, but these, you know, but but the people we're working with seem to experience, uh, you know, seem to be responding to uh, the general culture and the and and the distress they're experiencing seem to go up and down in waves associated with public bias. So we need a new way to think about this. And so this is a model that Elon Myers popularized that says, you know, if we really want to capture, and and this doesn't seem to apply to all minorities, but it does to gender and sexual minorities. If we really want to capture the spectrum of how people are harmed, um, we need to look at the range from starting with what we internalize, like negative messages or messages about pathology, um, the the sense of, of fear of how others will respond or that will be rejected in our social relationships, um, the effort we're putting into concealment um, in, in different parts of our life so we could stay safe, uh, our experiences with ex- with overt discrimination leading up to and including um, acts of violence. And so you really need to capture the full gamut. Um, if, if you want from a, a science perspective to start to account for where the changes are and to think about how you want to intervene with your clients. And just one tiny kind of add on to that, that I think for me has been really important about minority stress is minority stress is obviously not something that's isolated to just gender and sexual minorities. It also is the case for ethnic minorities and so forth. Um, however, generally for ethnic minorities, people have their family more often than not, you know, so you have other people who you can clearly relate to who belong to the same minority group. So there can be a sense of validation and community there. And the problem can, can be for particularly a lot of young gender and sexual minorities, and particularly if they live within a conservative home, is that they might not be able to overtly share what their identity is, and then they might not have that sense of community and that sense of connectedness. So I think that's a really key kind of piece to see is that, um, you know, that, that sense of kind of community and connectedness is really important, especially important for gender and sexual minorities, particularly if people don't know other people who identify as they do. Right, if they're feeling sort of separate or outcast from the people around them. Yeah. Yeah, That takes a huge toll. Absolutely. Ashley, you have a chapter in the book about coming out with compassion. I love that title. And you really write about the importance of coming out and and that process for people when it's sort of assumed, otherwise assumed that you'll be heterosexual, cisgender. Um, Can you tell us about that? So I guess in terms of coming out, I suppose, if you kind of think of it in terms of a a continuum or in terms of kind of, I suppose, outness versus concealment in terms of kind of gender or sexual identity. Um, And there may be some situations in some contexts in which the safer option may be to conceal identity. So for example, I am pretty out in most areas of my life, but there might be some times where maybe I'm in a taxi or something like that late at night in a neighborhood that I don't know, I'm a city that I don't know. And 
in those situations, it just might be safer for me to conceal my identity. And that's not going to really have a damaging impact in terms of my mental health and well-being. However, if I'm concealing my identity on a mass ongoing basis, that's going to lead to a lot of shame in myself. Um, and that will lead to a lot of, I'm just kind of using myself as an example, but it's going to lead for a lot of shame for, you know, clients or kind of friends or people that, who identify gender and sexual minorities. So it's not necessary that we need to be out or open in all contexts. However, there is a significant body of research to show that if we are mainly concealing our gender or sexual identity, that's going to lead to a lot of feelings of shame around ourselves, around our identity um, and, and that. And it, so I think it's, it's really important to look at how can we come out with passion and with this caveat as well as that you know if I'm working with younger people who identify as a gender or sexual minority and even more so gender minority and they are young and they are financially dependent upon their parents I will be having a really honest conversation with them and a really compassionate conversation around them around what the impact of that will be because I have certainly you know um you know worked with uh, trans and gender non-conforming individuals who have been kicked out of home when they when they share their gender identity and unfortunately that's not an isolated incident when I talk to other mental health professionals this is a very real piece so I think the compassionate piece is, you know, to break outside the kind of comfort zone and to kind of kind of share more and conceal less, yet to do so in a way that is safe for the individual at that moment in time. Um, and for some people, it might be just in terms of, you know, if they're just starting to explore their gender identity in a more public way, it might be even that they start to explore that more with me first and then maybe pick one more person, that it doesn't need to be this, I'm fully out or I'm fully concealed, that there is this continuum and that we can be really choiceful and aware and kind of making decisions on a values-guided basis and an ongoing on an ongoing basis and that it, that this can kind of open up more and more with time um, and I, I think coming out with compassion as well is around being really aware of the context there are certainly some contexts and some way of sharing about um, an identity that are going to be more likely to lead to a more receptive response from you know family in particular and also perhaps friends so to maybe do some perspective taking at the start that you do not need to like love or want where somebody else is coming from particularly if they've got more conservative views in terms of gender and sexual identity but to try and understand that person and try to bring that into how you speak to that person so that you have the best chance of them being able to receive and hear um, your perspective. So I would often help people to kind of, you know, write out things beforehand or and to really kind of almost role play it with me or sometimes exactly role play it with me so that they're having this chance to do it, um, to, to practice before going into the circumstance. Because it, it can be really challenging and, and for a lot of people, they've grappled with their own identity for a while. And then often people can wait, you know, usually in the sphere of you know years or sometimes decades to tell other people and then there can be a mass disappointment if other people don't understand it right away so I think it's balancing that compassion for oneself around the disappointment that that brings up and also then to as best we can bring some compassion to how the other person might be responding again we don't need to condone it like it, love it or want it but to help to kind of understand it and to to give that compassion to ourselves and to respond in a way that's most likely going to have the best outcome possible. Yeah. And it's so important just to note that there's no one size fits all model, that it really varies situation to situation, person to person. 
I read about Mohini first and um, one of, I really like Tara Brack. She's a Buddhist psychologist based in, in, in Washington, D.C. And I first read about Mohini in one of her blog posts that was called Accepting Absolutely Everything or something along those lines. And um, I actually then started researching Mohini in all these different places because it just really was so poignant to me about this this regal white tiger who had been kind of brought over from India and had been kind of given to um I think it was President Eisenhower, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, mm-hmm. and had lived then in the Washington DC National Zoo. And for most of those years it was in Mohini was in this 12 by 12 foot kind of cage and people really rallied together and there was donations to make this space bigger and people were just so excited and then he continued to go around this 12 by 12 foot and actually needed to be put down with arthritis probably due to a lack of movement um, or mobility based on this really tiny kind of level of living um and when i think about that i think that if they had gradually expanded from 12 by 12 to 13 by 13 to 14 by 14 the tiger would have been able to acclimate better but sometimes we have this rush that we can get into this idea that yeah being out or what have you is the best way to be and actually often to do so in a gradual compassionate way perhaps firstly going to people who we have good reason to believe are more likely to be receptive and building it out that way is is often a more sustainable way um, and can often be better in terms of our, our mental health and well-being. Um, and I use that kind of the story of Mohini across the board and Matthew and I have run a number of workshops where we actually ask people to think about times where they felt closeted by you know gender or sexuality and we make it really clear that you don't have to identify as a gender or sexual minority to feel closeted in terms of a gender and sexual identity so often you know cisgender heterosexual men might say you know I was told that if I showed emotion if I cry that I wasn't acting like a man or that I wasn't attractive or you know you know sexually desirable when I did that so I learned to kind of push it down or and when I think we do an exercise like this and we look at ways that we have felt kind of closeted or kind of in a straitjacket based on gender or sexual expectations of ourselves and then the actions that we inadvertently engage in that in some ways make us feel even more trapped. Um, I think, and often people are like, I don't really know. And then people write it down and they see what other people write down and they realize how prevalent this really is. And I don't know, Matthew, if you want to share anything else on that, because I know we've engage in that exercise together i'm just thinking of um once ashling and i did a uh webinar together and um asked people to uh send their responses from the 12 by 12 just to the moderator so that it could be reposted anonymously and it was it worked just as well it was that same experience of it hits so deeply because when we're isolated in this way, which, you know, if you're in the closet, you, you can't connect with other people. Um, you don't realize how much of your story is a shared story. Mm-hmm. And this goes, you know, much earlier, uh, Ashling was mentioning just that community connectedness piece, how much of a resource that is. And that's what we get when we start to open up. We, we get the flip side, which is we realize my story isn't one that makes me alone. My story is one that makes me part of a group of people that have a lot of resources and can find love and can support one another. So important. So important. Yeah. Yeah. And I I just love thinking about how 
we are caged in sometimes by these inflexible views we get around issues related to gender and um, sexuality and that there's something to be said for for sharing stories so that those we get less caged in by that and the flexibility grows. Matthew, I know that one of the chapters that you read that I thought was really important, especially as a clinician, um, Mm -hmm. was about shame and why shame is such an important issue um, in working with gender and sexual minorities. Can you speak a bit about shame and how you work with it in your practice? Yeah, yeah. Um, So I, I think of shame as, you know, there's a big emphasis right now in, um, in emotion research about just where these emotions come from and the function they play in our life. And I think it's important to recognize that, that shame is, you know, in the construction of, of, of our physical, you know, of our, of our hardware over the millennia, shame is that check engine light that says you're under threat or, um, or at risk of losing your connections with others of being left out of the group. And it it leads to hiding, it leads to closing ourselves off, it leads to withdrawing, it leads to making ourselves smaller. And, um, and, and it overlaps with most of those aspects of minority stress we talked about earlier. When you're, the more you conceal, uh, well, what do you do when you're ashamed? I mean, you hide your face, you, you, you shrink yourself physically, you know, concealment at its heart is an action that that resonates with shame. Um, rejection sensitivity or the fear of how others will respond to us. If you have to put armor on every day emotionally because life has taught you that if someone really sees you, like really sees who you are, that that they're going to reject you or that they'll see something broken about you, then that also fosters shame. And then all the thoughts that are just mirrors of society. You know, I was I was raised in part in a, in a conservative Southern Baptist uh, uh, church where, you know, I remember one of the first references as a child I remember to same-sex relationships was about AIDS being God's punishment for um, for having these relationships. Um, and I, I just saw the movie Boy Erased recently, which captures this beautifully this background, but. Um, but all of these, all of these add to shame. All of these, you know, even just, um, even just that process. Ashling was describing earlier of how sometimes our own experience unfolds to ourselves. This also can fuel a sense of shame for some. That sense that um, I'm doing it wrong. Everyone else has it figured out. How can I not know my know my gender, know my sexuality, and all. All of this adds to that that emotional sense toward the self that I'm broken, mm-hmm. and and it's just there are so many messages from all directions in our community that push for that. That I think that's part of what makes it so central to work on. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And so, how do you work work with with people when shame that you know that sense of there's something wrong with me, I'm broken when that comes yeah. up clinically? How do you where do you go with that? It's there probably, probably complicated because I doubt again that there's a one size fits all model, but yeah. And this was, you know, as uh, as an editor on this book, that was p- one of the decisions why, from very early on, I knew I wanted more than one shame chapter to capture some of the directions. 
So you have like a beautiful chapter from Nicola Petrocchi and uh, some of his colleagues in Italy and Portugal um, on compassion-focused therapy approaches, which is really all about learning to receive and, and kind of open up the armor enough that you can let in some warmth, let in some, some care from others. Um, and while I use CFT techniques, my chapter I focused on some of the ACT techniques of um, diffusion. How can we take these thoughts, these messages we've gotten about our brokenness and hold them a little lighter? How can we learn to watch what we do differently in the world, ways that we you know, build our 12 by 12 or step out of it, depending on how much, we're, how much weight we're putting on those beliefs in a given day? And can we practice and can we look at and examine or, or mindfully observe what happens when that shifts, when we're able to believe those thoughts a little bit less? And so these are these are some of the ways. Some of them are just, and and some are the more um, behavioral. You know, when you when you get a sense with a given client, what does it look like for you to step out of the twelve by twelve? Well, then where can you do more of that? You know, you can only come out to so many people. And, well, I don't know. That's probably not true. You could keep moving, but um, but but there are only certain types of actions that that. Uh, uh, we want our clients not to focus on the narrow actions. We want to think about, you know, what are all the different ways that you can fully show up? What are all the ways that you could be vulnerable and authentic and genuine where the practice is not just you doing it. The practice is actually giving other people the opportunity to respond with love because that's what shame steals from you. Shame steals your ability to see that there are people in the world who will respond warmly. And at the start, sometimes the practice is that it's just me or you or Ashley, you know, it's the therapist in the room could say, no, as another human being, this is, this is not deserving of, uh, of anger. This is, you know, this really draws me to care for you. Um, and then it's bringing that into the world. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I think even just the starting point that you started with, with, which is helping people be aware of it. So mm-hmm. recognizing even where are those messages are coming from, how are they playing out, you know, inside your own mind, et cetera, that can be big because I feel like sometimes it's so deeply ingrained. The starting point might be not even understanding what's, what's happening or where it's coming from. Yeah. Yeah. And then moving toward compassion and connection. Yeah. Well, and I would encourage folks who are clinicians who are interested in this to take a look at your book, because I think you bring that sort of contextual mindfulness acceptance-based approach to work with this population. And I think it's a really, there, there are a lot of reasons why this approach makes sense and, and could be helpful. Um, so people who want to dive deeper into that, definitely pick up the book. But in general, are you finding that this is a approach that works well? Um, with this population? Absolutely. I, I think the great thing about it is that acceptance is you always start with wherever you are, you know, so it's not like you need to reach some level to start this work. Acceptance is you can just start from wherever you are. And and I just think that so many of the kind of issues that arise for demisexual minorities are based on actual experiences. There's no amount of challenging the thoughts that are going to make them these thoughts not be true, do you know? And I think they can actually run the risk of invalidating people's experiences by trying to do that. So 
kind of like what Matthew was saying, it's like recognizing these thoughts and to hold them more lightly. And I think to actually really help people to contextualize from an evolutionary perspective, um, you know, there's a lot of reasons why we would be afraid of rejection because, you know, a lone monkey was a dead monkey, you know, and um, there was a lot of ostracizing of gender and sexual minorities throughout history. So there's a lot of that that we kind of carry um, still with us today. And I think um, as well, even in terms of shame, it's like to recognize that you couldn't have grown up in the world that we grew up in without having some unfavorable, adverse judgments around gender and sexual minorities and I think a lot of our work is to actually allow people that chance to acknowledge it because it's there whether you say it out loud or not you know and you even hear it in small ways where people kind of say oh my son or my daughter is gay but you'd never know it and it's kind of like even in that little say that piece there you know there's something in terms of like a pride and that like, like I'm totally okay with it, but I'm really happy that you wouldn't know it. And there's like just these little kind of pieces and to kind of work with that. And a lot of, uh, I think the acceptance piece is to recognize these thoughts that we have or to recognize that even if we feel like we don't take on board what our parents or our grandparents or our church or our educational system have said, there's a part of us that does kind of respond to ourselves in that way. And even to get a piece of paper and to write down these kind of judgments and these inherited pieces that we get from content, from, from the world and the context we live in. And then on the other side of the paper to recognize how we would respond to anybody else who was a gender or sexual minority and which reflects how we want to be in the world. And it's just so stark. So, I, that's what I love about acceptance pieces is because wherever you are, that's the perfect place to start. And we're not trying to validate anybody's experiences. We're just working with it from what it is and just to kind of build in some tools in terms of how to hold our stories more lightly, um, how to kind of connect in more compassionately to the inevitable and want emotions that arise. And again, from an acceptance perspective, of course, it makes sense if you're being rejected, if you're being invalidated, the most natural response in that situation is to have anxiety, to have sadness, to have anger, and that there's space in the room for all of that. And to really then work on the value part that there's a lot of really amazing things about being a gender or sexual minority as well. You know, it gives you access to a community and a sense of connectedness that, you know, there's any place we go into in, in the world or at least anywhere where there's kind of an open community that there's somewhere that Matthew or I could drop into and have a sense of kind of connection and belonging which is incredible and if you look at you know the people who've come before us and the rights that have been gotten through our community it's like it's phenomenal and there's and it's the acceptance part is both that there are some challenges that we will experience that other people will not who are cisgender and heterosexual but there's also this rich heritage that you know a lot of people can look at and admire but it's really cool to feel like you're part of that yeah i think that's one of the most beautiful places that this takes us and i think that um i i think that importance that ashling was saying about how these approaches are never invalidating you know you can kind of bring in acceptance for everything are so important particularly when i think of the clients that are at the far ends of rejection you know their families were part of religious communities where they they did already lose all their connections and don't know a way or um or it feels too threatening to open up to new connection in their life or um or 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 where their attempts to move outside of their 12 by 12 have been encountered with overwhelming violence Mm 
and um, and holding space for that, and holding a place where grieving can happen, mm-hmm. and holding a place where that can be acknowledged and and held up, and at the same time, sort of held in this in this space of recognizing that there are also ways to celebrate their identities, mm-hmm. our identities, that there are ways that it connects them with community. I think of uh, Glenda Russell's work on, LG, uh, on LGBT resilience, where she talks about um, one of the factors that can be so powerful is just connecting with, with the idea that across time, across place, we exist. And, and, it, and when things are difficult and when things are overwhelming, that doesn't mean that they are everywhere for everyone in our community, in every place. It's just right now. It's just right here. You know, it brings us back to that mindful space. Can I recognize that it's just this moment, that it's this bad, and that there are other places and other moments where it's not? And all of that continuity is something I'm a part of. It's beautiful. Yeah. And I'm so glad you guys talked about resilience because I think sometimes we tend to focus on the risk or the problems, the shame, the difficulty. Um, and yet so many people are so resilient and are finding such meaningful lives. And, and I think that that's so, that's just absolutely has to be acknowledged. We don't want to, you know, pathologize this as this big problem because that's often not the case or it's like you said, it's just the problem part is one small piece of it, but there's so many joys and wonderful things. What, what do you think can be done to promote resilience? Like say someone is a, a parent of a gay child or a transgender child or, you know, a clinician or something like that. Do you have any recommendations around trying to work toward that more resilient outcome, I guess? Not that there's ever an outcome, but you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I, I mean, there's so much overwhelming work on acceptance and how important it is um, for, for gender and sexual minority children. Um, you know, if your child tells you, this is my pronoun, use it. If and, and if you have questions, because this goes to Ashling's point earlier of, you know, one of the biggest differences across, uh, uh, you know, looking at gender and sexual minorities is that we're generally not born into families that have other members we could look to, is if you have questions, if you don't know the lingo, um, I think it can be an incredibly powerful thing for parents to do their own exploration whether it's through finding a parent group like PFLAG or if it's, um, if it's doing their own reading or if it's, just doing, um, if it's just doing some reflection on their own life and, okay, do, do, does the church that, that I've chosen as a parent my family goes to, do gender and sexual minority people go there? Are they welcome there? Um, what about my friends? What about who I invite over with their families to be around the kids? How am I modeling a world where my child will be accepted and embraced and loved? And can I take steps toward that if that's the type of parent I want to be? What about you, Ashley? Any tips for promoting resilience? And to be honest, Matthew said a lot of the things that I would say, um, and I think just really the importance of kind of linking in with community wherever possible, you know, and that there is so much resilience that can come from community and connection. Uh, But I I think any time where we 
kind of acknowledge and celebrate somebody's identity, we are helping to promote resilience for that person. You know, every small thing that we do, you know, as Matthew said, every time that we use the correct pronoun, every time that, you know, you know, let's say even if if you're a parent and you're listening to something and you hear something that's transphobic or homophobic or biphobic, to even just have that conversation then with with the child afterwards and just say, look, I'm just wondering how you felt because, like, to be honest with you, I was like really ticked off. I would say something more than ticked off, but I don't want to be beeped out. Keeping I was really it clean ticked off for the podcast. <laughs> keeping it clean. Um, you know, just even like share, you know, I noticed I was upset when I heard that thing on television or when I heard that piece there. And I'm just wondering what it was for you. And I think like true resilience is not that you don't feel unwanted emotions such as sadness or anger or disappointment or shame you know it's but it, it, it true resilience is a place where these these emotions can be acknowledged and they can be validated and they can actually be celebrated that this just tells you that you're a human being that, that you care and how can we connect to kind of a larger sense of of community absolutely as a parent we on this podcast we talk a lot about parenting and we we actually ask a lot of our guests questions about how to talk to children about these kind of issues. Um, I know that in my upbringing, there were pretty fixed views about gender that I was exposed to. I think that's probably true for most people. I'd say it's the rare person who doesn't get that. Do you have suggestions for parents who want to raise children who are open, who have more flexibility, who have you know, compassion, whether it's for themselves or for other people they know, maybe who are say not not aligning with traditional gender roles and that kind of thing. How how would you talk to children about these kind of things? For me, I think there's some piece in terms of being aware of what kind of rules or guidelines are we kind of it might be inadvertently kind of exposing children to very very early on, such as, you know, like just the really typical things like girls wear pink and boys wear blue and girls do this and boys do that. And I even think just in certain ways, just to even just create space, you know, for children to you know, play in whatever way that they want to play or express themselves in whatever way they want to express themselves. And, you know, even if kind of similarly, if you're watching television, because it's so prevalent. And honestly, I have never met somebody who was not raised with kind of pretty fixed um, gender roles at, at some level. So maybe Matthew has, he lives in the Bay Area, but like certainly over here, um, you know, everyone I've met has has kind of gotten some rigid kind of rules about it so I think then even to be aware of you know what are children watching on television you know cartoons you know are they promoting these kind of um very rigid views and it's funny even one of my friends she was just saying oh yeah my daughter's watching Snow White and she's like oh I don't know the feminist in me is like Ugh. and I was like and she's like, but my daughter is like four and she likes it and I was like of course you know um, and my two daughters have heard me give a lot of speeches about Snow White swooping in and and cleaning for the dwarves, you know. Mm-hmm. I have given many a lecture on that topic to my own children. Yeah. yeah. And, I think, you know, and I think it's so <laughs> to be a dwarf. Lost strangers cleaning, doing the dishes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I think it's around kind of balancing these things out. You know, it's I think it's impossible to think that your child will not be exposed to this. And I think this comes to relational frame theory as well, which is kind of covered within the book, which is a theory of language of cognition and it just helps us kind of make sense of how we learn and how we communicate and the one thing 
that I think is really important here to highlight is that you cannot delete elements of a relational network. So we, none of us here, you know, myself, Matthew, yourself, Debbie, or any of your listeners, we cannot delete what we have been kind of told by society. However, we can add on. So how can we add on and create more experiences so that, you know, children feel like they have more choice in terms of how they express their gender and their sexuality because they know that they have got more than this rigid option or kind of stereotype that's available to them. So that's my top one's worth. What about you, Matthew? I, I think that, I mean, you touch on so many great points and there, and there's, there are so many changes in media. Like mm-hmm. um, uh, I, I'm thinking of, I just saw the new uh, Wreck-It Ralph movie, Ralph Breaks the Internet, where um, uh, one of the characters encounters some Disney princesses who are running her through the drill to see if she's a real princess. And they involve things like, you know, did some did some guy show up and get all the credit for you know for for you know overcoming whatever obstacles in your life and things like that? Um, or there are cartoons like Steven Universe that uh, they even hire uh, uh, non-binary voice actors, and um, so so there's a lot of change in what we could expose kids to. But I also think we do so much modeling in our own. Um, comfort and openness and honesty. It just goes back to the humility and um, an unknowing piece. You know, if our child's drawn to, you know, if we've got a young a, a young one who's wanting to like label someone's gender or is confused by what gender someone's presenting as, um, well, we can model like, well, what would you do differently? Mm-hmm. You know, do you want to say hi and get to know the person? Does does their does their gender factor into this? Um, there are different ways that you can guide and talk about it. But the flip side is that children are also often much easier than people give credit for, you know, because, because if a four or a five-year-old encounters, um, encounters a same-sex couple getting married or sees someone um, where, where they're not presenting in a traditional uh, gendered way, you know, for small kids, they're often much less worried than their parents. They often just roll with it or, mm-hmm. or have their own terminology that they come up for of, you know, of who this is or of what's going on and, and why it's fine. And I, and I think that we often overlook or don't notice how frequently parents are sort of policing that, mm-hmm. either in saying we don't talk about that or in, uh, or in some other way indicating that that we're not going to go there and mom and dad don't want to don't want to explore what this means yeah I think it's interesting with my own kids and I was talking to one of my co-hosts of the podcast as well and we've both had we both have young kids who have had classmates that weren't sort of gender conforming typical gender conforming and it's been interesting to see and we both have in context where that was very um I think addressed in a pretty compassionate way and just to see our kids, how they responded to that. And I think you're right. It was, it was fine. You know, it's just their friend. It doesn't seem like that big of a deal to them and, and, and being exposed to same sex couples, I think more than I ever was as a child. It's, it's been interesting too, that that's just not as big of a deal to them, you know, and they just are, it's fine. You know, my, my four-year-old said to me, in front of a, um, a parent at the school who is in a same-sex relationship. And she just said, matter of fact, like, well, I have a mommy and a daddy, but not everybody does. And I was like, yeah. And we just had this whole conversation about different families. And it was just so matter of fact, it was really lovely that children maybe haven't 
built in some of those same inflexibilities or biases. And it's nice. Yeah, I'm, I'm really curious to see how this next generation comes about because I, I think that's the piece is often parents are like, what do I say to our children? But children just don't, they haven't built up those rigid rules yet. You know, um, one of my goddaughters said to me, she was like, Ashling, when I grow up, I'm not sure yet if I'm going to marry a woman or a man. Now, she needs to do a bit more in terms of transgender nonconforming, but we were, we were proud of this like three years ago. And she goes, so I'm, I'm going to save some of my communion money in case I marry a girl so that I can buy a, a nice engagement ring like the one you got for, your, for Trish. <laughs> um, it costs a bit more than your communion money, I'm guessing, for that. I was like, that's great. <laughs> you know, um, that's great. It's just that kind of piece. And, um, you know another kind of child who was at our wedding was like yeah that was that wedding was a lot of fun I'm just wondering if Ashley and Trish have children which one of them is gonna have the baby you know and this kind of piece and it's I I think you know young children just it's not a deal it's just not a big deal um uh, and I think part of that is because contextually we've changed how we're responding but also I think they've Young children haven't had that chance to build up these rigidity pieces. So I think really as parents, it's just around how can I just not contribute to a rigid view in terms of gender and sexuality. And even certain, like there's even small ways we can do that, that if we hear that, you know, um, a, a, a child has had same sex, you know, kind of leanings or a teenager that we don't automatically label that person as gay because that might not be their identity and you know lisa diamond has some done some wonderful work around this that you know people can identify as gay at some points in their life straight at others and bisexual other points in life that it isn't fixed or stable um in that way and i think that we just want to be aware of not putting children into boxes um as well around kind of either gender identity or sexual identity based on an assumption yeah it kind of brings us back to our original point, which is a nice place to close, which is that, you know, you can't make assumptions. You can't assume that everyone's experience is the same. And I have really appreciated the conversation today, just in terms of thinking through some of these issues. There's probably a whole nother, you know, we could go on for hours about this, but it's been really absolutely wonderful. I'm so honored that you both came on to the podcast to talk about this with us today. And I also just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for the really important work that you're doing. I, I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. And I am especially appreciative that you were both willing to do this in the morning so that I was able to talk to you in my like early evening time. So That's was- right. That's- Coordinating time zones is a big challenge. Yeah. Um, before we end, can you do you have any resources? Um, how can people find you? You're online. I know you have your TEDx talk, which is wonderful, Ashley. Thank you. Um, yeah, so I have a TEDx talk. It's called The Power of Small. It's up on the TEDx YouTube channel. Um, and also I'm pretty active on Twitter as well. A little bit less active recently, but that's going to change up a little bit now. That's at Ashling L. Curtin. Um, and there are some resources that go alongside our book, which people can get through the New Harpinger website as well. So that's kind of a nice way of kind of staying connected with us. Um, and Matthew, what are the best ways of getting in touch with you? Um, there's my website, drmatthewskinta.com. And, um, yeah, in addition to our book, I also thought I'd put in a soft plug for, uh, San Chang and Annalise Singh and Lord Dickey just came out with a clinician's guide to gender affirming care as well. So there, there are so many amazing new resources coming out. 
Well, we will link to those on our web page so that people can find them easily. If yeah, if you guys send me a list, I'll put those up so that our listeners can find you and find these resources. Thank you again and Thank best you. of luck to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are having a mental health emergency, please dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources on our webpage. Our website is www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's www.offtheclockpsych.com.